Good morning, good morning. I want to welcome all of you here that are joining us online here in East Texas and all over the world. We're excited that you are worshiping uh, with us at New Beginnings. I'm going to encourage you to grab your Bibles if you would. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, as you're grabbing your Bibles and getting settled in and maybe uh, getting the kids occupied, grabbing a pen and some paper to take notes, uh, I just want to take an opportunity to welcome those of you who are experiencing New Beginnings for the very first time. Uh, It is just a privilege and a joy to have you join us today. Uh, My name is Todd Connance. I get the privilege of serving as the lead pastor uh, at New Beginnings, and so we want to say thank you for joining us. Uh, We would also love to connect with you, Um, and so if it's your first time, just send us a message. You can text us uh, and text the letters NBBC uh, to the number 313131, NBBC to the number 313131. We would love to know that you joined us today and have the opportunity to send you a gift uh, as well as some more information about uh, our church. But again, thank you for being our uh, guest. And I want to encourage everyone watching right now, make sure that you're sharing this and, and inviting others to join in as we dive into God's Word today. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start reading in verse number 13. Listen to what uh, Matthew says. He says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to them, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood does not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want to take a moment and just just pause and pray and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to dig into this passage of Scripture that the Lord would speak to us today. Let's, let's pray. Father, we, we are overwhelmed at the privilege that we have today to gather as your people all over the world. While we are divided by a virus, we are united here online, but we are united in an even greater way, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God, we thank you that through Jesus and his resurrection that you have given us the gift of the church. And so, Father, as we dive in this morning to discover who we are as the body of Christ, as we dive into this series to unpack Uh, what it means to be a part of this movement that is unstoppable. God, I pray that your presence will meet with us. Your spirit will speak to us. God, we need you. And God, in these days that we have experienced the trials of just the brokenness of this world and the circumstances, God, and, and it is out of our control. But God, we confess today it is not out of your control. And so God, may you, through this season, do a work in the heart of your bride 
that we would be more beautiful and more radiant and more holy, more powerful, and have a deeper understanding of who we are in these days. And we ask all of this in the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, six weeks ago, uh, life changed as we knew it. I I think as as we uh, moved into the season of the coronavirus and COVID-19 entering into the equation, I don't think any of us had in mind kind of what was about to change. But about six weeks ago, I'll never forget, I was outside with my son. We were shooting basketball uh, there in the backyard, and all of a sudden my father-in-law comes out of the house, and he just says, hey, you need to get in here. The NBA just shut down the season. And so we kind of ran inside and watched the news and kind of glued to the set the next uh, few hours as we just watched and, and, and saw the changes that were happening. And it seemed like over the next few days, everything began to shut down and close down. And, and I knew in that moment that, that this was going to be a big deal, that this was going to be a history-altering moment uh, for the entire world. And as we begin to kind of move uh, through all of the different phases, here we are now six weeks later. There's no school. We are in uh, shelter-in-home orders. I mean, we, we think about going to restaurants and, and, and different places, and we, we kind of long for the good old days, and we could go uh, to Lowe's without standing in line to get in. But life literally has changed. History has altered as we know it. And I, as I thought about this, here is the thing that just blows my mind. With all of the brain power that we have in the world, with all of the capabilities, with all the medical advancements, with all the technology that we have at our disposal, this tiny little microscopic virus has turned the world on its head. That it is a force that all we're really trying to do is wait this thing out. Something so small has made such a, a huge impact in culture and society. But the reality is, and the the truth for all of us today, is we need to recognize that something even greater happened 2,000 years ago. See, we celebrated last weekend the resurrection of Jesus. And so we we really examined the the fact that there was a man in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago who who was crucified. He was put on a Roman cross where he died. And, And here's the thing. If that was all there was to the story, then we wouldn't even be here today. We wouldn't be watching or talking about this man at all. See, what what took place with this man that was so significant is not that he died because tens of thousands of people died by Roman crucifixion during the day of Jesus. But what makes Jesus different is that three days later, he resurrected from the grave. And in the resurrection of Jesus, there was a chain reaction of events that has literally turned the world on its head, that the world has never been the same again. That Jesus altered history in a way that no individual on the planet has ever done. The resurrection of Jesus was an event that changed the world in a way that no other event has changed the world. And it ignited a movement, and that movement we know as the church. And the church has become a a movement sparked from this resurrection that has literally transformed the world and is continuing today 2,000 years to transform the world. That Jesus started this movement, and the church of Jesus Christ is the most powerful force this world has ever seen. You see, the, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't get changed or altered by history, but rather the church of Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus, it alters and changes history. 
And this is what we are a part of as the people of God. And this is exactly what Jesus said would happen, that there is going to be this movement that starts, and this movement is going to continue until he returns. And this is what he's telling us is going to happen in Matthew chapter 16. And and listen, in these days of COVID-19, we're discovering more and more of what Jesus talked about. You see, the movement of Jesus, this church that he has started, is more than a place that you go to. It's more than a service you attend. It's a body. It's It's a movement. It's a gathering of people rallied around a person, and nothing can stand in its way, not even COVID-19. And this is what we've discovered. I mean, I know all over the world, God is on the move, and certainly through New Beginnings, that our buildings are emptied and and our programs have changed, but the movement and the mission has continued to flourish because the church is unstoppable. And I think through this season that we're in, we are gaining a greater understanding of what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And we now know better than we've ever known that the church is not defined by an address or a location or a time slot that we give it during the week. But the the body of Christ, the church, is a movement that nothing can stop. And this is the heartbeat of the series that we are in, this unstoppable church series. We want to unpack and see what Jesus started what we're a part of, and what we are called to do as his people. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to I dive into this particular passage. I want to dive into Matthew chapter 16. And I want to dial into this because this is where Jesus uh, really prophesied that this thing called the church was going to start. And I want us to look at what it means to be a people gathered, to be a people that are gathered together called the church. So if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do so, I want you to write a couple of things down. The first thing I want you to write down is this, is that I want you to see in this passage that we are united by an unbelievable message. We are united by an unbelievable message. Verse 13 through through 16, we really begin to see all of this come together. So Jesus is on this journey with his disciples, and he's having this conversation. They're heading up to a region uh, Caesarea Philippi. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But on this journey, Jesus asked this question. He simply just says, hey, who do the people say that I am? Now, now Jesus is not some uh, person who's paranoid and who's overly concerned about the opinions of others. There's a reason he's asking this question. He's saying, basically, hey, what's the word on the street? What are people saying about me? As Jesus has moved through the various locations, as he's performed miracles and he's taught the crowds, Jesus just simply asked the question, hey, what are people saying about me? And the disciples begin to give their answer. They begin to say, man, some say John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah, some say that you're one of the prophets. Now, now here's the thing. Everybody who has ever encountered Jesus in any way will have an opinion about who Jesus is. And see, in the opinion that people are giving of Jesus, particularly from from the disciples here about what the crowds were saying about Jesus. Now listen, if Jesus was just an ordinary person, these will all be high compliments for Jesus. I mean, if I was to have someone call me today and say, hey, pastor, you remind me of John the Baptist. Or, man, when I read Jeremiah in the Old Testament, I think about you. Or, man, you're just like one of those prophets. Man, I would take that as a massive compliment to be even put in the category of John the Baptist and Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But for Jesus, this opinion is not high enough. You see, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. He is greater than Jeremiah. He is greater than the other prophets. 
And this is what we find. The opinion of the people is that there is a high view of Jesus, but not a view that's high enough. Jesus asked this question, who do the people say that I am? And they give the answer. And then Jesus turns and he looks at his disciples and he asks them, I believe the most important question that any of us could be asked and give an answer to. He looks at his disciples in verse 16. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Listen, I want you listening to my voice today. Those of you who've joined us online, I want you to hear this question Jesus wants to pose to you today. Who do you, who do you say that Jesus is? You see, the reality is who you believe Jesus to be doesn't change anything about who Jesus is, but it changes everything about who you are. And Jesus wants you to answer the question that he's asking his disciples. Who have you come to the conclusion that Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus to be? Now, he asked the disciples this question, and Peter, being the spokesperson of the, of the, of the disciples, he replies to this in verse 16. Look what he says. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Now, Peter gives his answer to this, and he understands exactly who Jesus is. He says, you are the Christ. Let me unpack this for a moment. You see, the, the, the name Christ or the title Christ really isn't a last name to Jesus. Oftentimes we think of Todd Connitz and there's Matt Darby and then there's Jesus Christ. And that's not really the case. See, the Christ is not a last name for Jesus. Rather, it's a title of Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ there means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, it's the concept of Messiah. And see, and here is what Peter is confessing here. Peter is simply saying to Jesus, we know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You see, in the Old Testament, God promised that the Messiah would come. God promised that he would send a king who would come and redeem his people. That he would reconcile the void between God and man. And he would bring creation back to himself. And he would rule and reign as our people. And he would be our God. And we would be his people. And we would live in right relationship with him. And for decades upon decades, years upon years, they anticipated and they waited and they longed for the day when the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer would appear. And Peter, in this moment, on behalf of the disciples, he declares the the truth. Jesus, you are the one we've been waiting for. You are the redeemer that God promised to come and redeem and rescue and restore your kingdom here on earth. Peter says, you are the Christ, but you are more than that. Look what he says. He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. See, Peter understood something about the Messiah that was often missed that the Messiah would not merely be just a man, but rather it would be the God man. And when he says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, he is acknowledging the deity of Jesus. He is acknowledging the divine nature of Jesus, that Jesus is not merely man. He is God in the flesh. And Peter recognizes in this moment the fullness of what the Messiah would be. He is not only the king who would come, but he is God in the flesh. You see, what Peter recognizes is that God who made us has now come to save us. That the God that created, who has promised that there would be a redeemer, would be the one who would step in and redeem his people. Jesus goes on to explain how he would redeem. 
You see, Peter declares here, he says, you are the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. In other words, we know that you are God's salvation. And Jesus, in verse 21, begins to press into this and show them how this salvation would occur. He says this, he says, and from that time, in other words, from the time that they recognized that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, it says this, that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Jesus is showing the disciples, listen, this redemption is here. The Messiah has come. The Son of God is before you. And this is how the redemption is going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to hang on a cross. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be put in a tomb. And three days later, I'm going to resurrect from the grave. And this is how the salvation that God promises is going to enter into the equation. You see, this is the message of Christianity. This is the message of the church. This is the message that unites us together as a body of believers. It is that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God, that he died for our sins. He was resurrected for our salvation. And he is the way by which we are redeemed and restored back into right relationship with God. This is what makes the church the church. Look what Jesus says in verse 17 about this confession. He says, and Jesus answered in verse 17, and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, this understanding or this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is the Savior of the world, is not something that comes from merely human intuition or human uh, understanding. This is a divinely revealed confession that Peter is making. That only through the Holy Spirit of God can our hearts be awakened to the reality of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Look what he says in verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, Jesus says something here. He says it's upon this rock, and this rock he is referring to is not Peter as the rock, but rather the confession that Peter makes about who Jesus is. That is the rock. And Jesus says, hey, it is upon this rock, this confession, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, who has come to redeem the world through my death and resurrection. It is through that confession that I'm going to build my church. Now, the word church here is the word in the Greek language, ekklesia. The word ecclesia was not a really a religious word in Jesus' day. It just simply meant a gathering of people, an assembly of people who were to rally together. And what Jesus is saying in this moment is that, listen, it is upon that confession of who I am. It is upon your understanding and the confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, that there will be a gathering of people called the church that I will do a work in and through that's going to change the world. You see, church family, what we need to understand today is that what makes us a body of believers, what makes us the church, is that we have come together under the banner of the confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. That this is what makes us his people. And this is exactly what happens. If you, 
If you go back and read the, the book of Acts in Acts chapter 2, Jesus dies and he resurrects. He has the disciples gather together. He gives them the great commission, tells them to wait on the Holy Spirit. He ascends to the Father. The Holy Spirit falls on the people, and the church of Jesus Christ is birthed and ignited. And this movement begins through the proclamation of Peter that Jesus, the Christ, has come. He died. He resurrected. And upon the proclamation of that first sermon in Acts chapter 2, the church of Jesus Christ was born and the movement started. And here we are 2,000 years later and the movement continues all starting with this confession. We are united, church family. We are united by an un believable message and that is that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he died for us and he resurrected this is what brings us together so let me give you at number two we are united by an unbelievable message we have been sent on an unmistakable mission we have been sent on an unmistakable mission look what he says again in verse 13 there's a, a bit of information here that is recorded that is, that is important that we get. He says, now when Jesus, this is verse 13, came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now why in the world would Matthew include this little detail into his letter? And when they came to the region of Caesarea uh, Philippi, th this was important because G Jesus is on this journey with his disciples. He walks, check this out, 25 miles to Caesarea Philippi. To have this conversation. Now, I think this is a strategic moment in the ministry of Jesus. He walks them 25 miles to Caesarea Philippi. Let me just tell you a bit about, about this region. Caesarea Philippi was known for its pagan worship. It was known for its cult practice. It was known for all kinds of immorality and, and, and evil practices and human sacrifice and prostitution and all kinds of immoral, evil, corrupt activity. In fact, no respectable rabbi, teacher, would ever take his students, his disciples, to this region. But for some reason, Jesus walks to this place. Uh, there at Caesarea Philippi, there was literally a, a, a temple to the, to the, to the Roman, the Greco-Roman god Pan. And there at the foothills of the temple, there was this little cave where water would flow out of this cave, this natural spring. And check this out. The name of the spring was called the Gates of Hell or the Gates of Hades. And it was believed to be that this was the access of the underworld, that spirits, evil spirits would move uh, in and out of, 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 the, the, of Hades to uh, the earth through this uh, well or this spring. And so I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus takes these disciples to the most evil, corrupt, satanic, unbelievably immoral place in order to have this conversation, he has the conversation, and then he turns around and leaves. Now listen, this seems like a big colossal waste of time, unless there's a message in this. You see, here's what I believe Jesus does in this moment. Jesus takes his disciples to this location, because it is in this location that Jesus is going to define for his disciples the mission that he is calling the church to. You see, I believe that Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi into this broken, dark place so that he could say to his disciples, it is in this location that I'm going to build my church. 
It is in this dark place that I'm going to establish this movement called the church, that I have come for the broken. I have come for those who are, are, are apart from me. I have come for those who seem to be hopeless. I have come to break into the corruption of this fallen world to start this movement called the church, that I am going to break into the darkness with the light of the gospel so that I might reach those who are broken and distant and severed from the relationship with God. You see, I believe Jesus moves to this location because he wants us to understand that the church has come to step into the brokenness, to step into the evil darkness of this world in order to bring reconciliation and hope. I think it's important that we understand the location, but also I want to press back into this word church here He uses this word, he says, upon this confession, I will build my church. In other words, in this location, and in places like Caesarea Philippi, I'm going to build my church. And the word church here, we we talked about it a moment ago. It's the the Greek word ekklesia. It just means a gathering of people or an assembly of people. But one of the things that's interesting about this word is that it most commonly was used in reference to not just a general assembly of people, but rather a, a legislative assembly of people. In other words, it's it's the people within a community that were called out by the community and given the legislative authority of the community. And what I believe Jesus is saying here when it comes to the church is that we, we have been chosen by him to walk in the authority of his kingdom while on earth. Let me kind of explain it like this. You see, the greatest thing on God's agenda is the advancement of his kingdom. You say, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is merely the rule and reign of God uh, over everything. It's that God is king and creation and the universe are subject to his kingship. But we know because of sin that this world is broken and temporarily the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the enemy has tried to uh, oversee what was rightfully the kingdom of God. And what God has promised he is going to do through the Messiah, through Jesus, is that he is going to usher his kingdom back in and he is going to take over territory that rightfully belongs to him. That through Jesus, the kingdom of God breaks in so that now the world is being redeemed back to the kingdom of God. And one day when Jesus returns, he is going to establish his throne and everything will come under the governance of King Jesus. And so Jesus ushers the kingdom in, but now it is through the church that the kingdom agenda is being advanced. It is through the church of Jesus that the kingdom of Jesus is now taking over the world. That God has called you and me and and the other local churches that make up the universal church all over the world. He has called us to usher in the kingdom of God. He has given us legislative authority of the kingdom to reveal what the kingdom is, what the kingdom looks like, and who gets into the kingdom and who gets kept out of the kingdom. This is why he says to the disciples, I'm going to give you keys to the kingdom. What does he mean? See, keys are a way of access. Another way of thinking about it is is that if you have the keys to a facility, that means you have the authorization to go in and out of that facility. You see, you, you and I, as the church of Jesus, we have been given the keys 
to the kingdom, which means we have been given authorization and the authority and accessibility of the kingdom of God. And it is our calling to walk in that authority of the kingdom while here on earth to advance the kingdom agenda so that God and King Jesus might be known in all the world. Let me, let me kind of unpack it like this. Tony Evans, in his book, Kingdom Agenda, and I recommend this book, here's how he explains this. He says this. He says, to be a part of the church as Jesus defined it is to be a part of a legislative body tasked to enact heaven's viewpoint in hell's society. In the midst of a place of war and conflict, God has deposited an ecclesia, a group of people who have been called out to bring the governance of God into the application and practice of mankind. The church is supposed to be where the values of eternity operate in history so that history sees what God looks like when heaven is operating on earth. The job of the church is not to adopt the culture, but rather to set heaven within the context of culture so that culture can see heaven at work in the midst of the activities and conflict of men. This is the unmistakable mission that we have been sent on as the church of Jesus Christ, that we have not been called just to blend into the world. Listen, he has called us out to live in the world, but not of the world. He has not called us here to take sides, whether we're on the side of the world or on the side of heaven. No, he has called us here so that heaven can take over the earth, so that God's kingdom can invade every single corner of the universe that rightfully belongs to God. At New Beginnings Baptist Church, I want to just implore you today. I want to urge you today. Listen, if there's ever been a time for us to embrace the mission of God, if there's ever been a time and a season for us to refocus our hearts on the calling that God has given us, listen, this is not a time for New Beginnings Baptist Church to retreat or to surrender or to back down or to pull away. It is time for us to press in and lean forward and understand the kingdom of God is being ushered in and God's agenda is going to be fulfilled and we have the privilege of being a part of the expansion of this kingdom so that heaven can happen on earth. And it is through you and through me and through the church of Jesus. And by the way, this authority that we've been given to expand kingdom's agenda on earth, this authority is not given to any other entity or organization on the planet. This solely, listen, belongs to the church of Jesus Christ and it is seen clearly through the local expression of the church which leads me to number three. Number three is powerful. Listen, we are, we are a part of an unstoppable movement. We are a part of an, an unstoppable movement. Verse 18, I love this. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, on this confession of who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus just simply says here, this declaration of who I am and what I came to do is going to start a movement. And that movement will continue once it starts until I return and make all things new. 
And I love this because here we are 2,000 years later and all over the world right now I am proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. And listen, the church of Jesus and the movement of Jesus is a phenomenon that historians are dumbfounded by because this movement didn't start with political power or financial backing or military strength. It didn't come with the support of religion. In fact, it was rejected by religion. And the message of Christianity in its early days and even today, it does not promote prosperity and peace, but rather it brings about sometimes poverty and persecution. And yet, amidst all of this, you see the church of Jesus Christ being the constant that moves forward. And regardless of the season, regardless of the challenges, it continues to move forward. And it cannot be stopped. This is what he makes crystal clear In verse 18, look what he says. He says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, oftentimes we read this passage of Scripture, and I think we miss the point that Jesus is making here. You see, oftentimes we treat this passage as if it's a defensive passage. Like, okay, the church has to just survive. The church has to make it through. That we've been given this promise that if we'll just hang in there, that that hell and all its attacks will not run over us and will not defeat us. And so what happens is is the church kind of uses this passage as a defense mechanism that says, okay, just hang on and just stick with it and just continue to stand strong because, man, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rescue us. And in the gates of hell and all of its attacks will not run over us. But that's not at all, I believe, what Jesus is saying here. You see, I think this is not defensive, it's offensive. You see, what is a gate meant for? A gate has two primary purposes. It's to keep those who are behind it in and to keep those who are outside of it from getting in. And here's what I believe Jesus is saying. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church Jesus is calling us on a mission to take over, to advance his kingdom, to declare to the world that the Messiah, the son of the living God has come and he died and he resurrected. And as we storm into the Caesarea Philippi's of the world, as we step into darkness and brokenness, that there is nothing hell can do to stop the church of Jesus Christ, that his movement will move forward. And no matter what he does to keep us out, we are going to break in. We are going to conquer and we are going to move forward. You see, the bride of Jesus is not some defensive, weak person that just needs some sort of protection from the attacks of the enemy. No, 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 no. We are a a body of believers that are running after hell and we're storming the gates and we're saying Jesus Christ has come to take over the world, that he is king and he died and he resurrected and life is only found in him and there is nothing, there is no gate that hell could put up that would keep the church of Jesus Christ from breaking in and breaking through. Why is this? Why is it, he says, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell itself, the gates of sin and death, the greatest weapon of the enemy will not be able to keep out the church of Jesus Christ. And here's why. It goes back to the confession. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He died and He resurrected. This is what gives us victory. And here's why. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, John gets a glimpse and a vision of Jesus and Jesus speaks to him and listen to what happens in Revelation 1, 
verse 17, John writes, When I saw him, saw King Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. Now listen to this. For I am the first and the last. I am and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. In other words, I am the living one. I died for your sins, and I resurrected, and I am alive forevermore. And listen to this. And I have the keys of death and Hades. You see, the greatest defense of the enemy is the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, of sin and death, keeping his rule and reign over humanity. But Jesus, in his death, he goes into the place of the dead and he snatches the keys from the enemy and he opens up the gates of hell from the inside out and now they are swung open wide so that all those who would be redeemed would come out of there and so that we would usher in this message. The gates of hell are open and they cannot stand against the church because our king has disarmed the gates of hell. He has taken the keys from the enemy and he says now as the church of Jesus Christ we have the authority of heaven. The one who holds the keys of death and hell is the one that we stand being sent by and in authority in. And now no matter what we are called to do, we know that we will advance the mission and the message of the church because the one who holds the keys of death and hell is the one who has sent us and given us the authority. And here's what that simply means for you and me, is that Jesus has come back. He's called us to go and reclaim what rightfully belongs to him. And nothing is going to stop his church from accomplishing this mission. I want you to hear what a great theologian, J.C. Ryle, says about this. He says, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, and burned, but the true church will never altogether extinguish. It rises again from its affliction. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up to another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands, then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried, each in his turn, the church is an anvil that has broken a many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning, yet not consumed. Listen to me say this today. The church has been hated, outlawed, persecuted, and executed. It has suffered economic collapse, plagues, wars, famines, COVID-19. It has been scrutinized, vandalized, and criticized. Yet, the church of Jesus Christ doesn't just survive. It thrives and endures. You see, here is the truth for you and me. Jesus, listen, is not creating for himself some beat-down, broken bride that's just waiting for the day when redemption can come. No, no, no. We stand as the redeemed, becoming more radiant and more beautiful and more holy and more prepared. And one day King Jesus is going to come back and he's not going to come back and take some weak, broken down church. He is going to come back for the church triumphant who stood faithful over time, who said to the enemy, we are not going to stop. We are not going to relent. We are going to continue to move forward because the gates of hell have already been conquered and we are marching forward in the name of 
King Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ is here to stay until he calls us home. And so we must press on. We must keep pushing. We must persevere. And we must understand there is this thing that we're part of. And it is unstoppable. Father of heaven and earth, we are overwhelmed today. That through your death and resurrection, we have been united as the bride. We are overwhelmed that your church cannot be stopped. And I pray in the name of Jesus that we, New Beginnings Baptist Church and churches all over the world, would recognize we have the distinct privilege of being the called out ones, the gathering who have been called to usher in through the message that we have been united by, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've been called to go to the darkest parts of the world knowing that nothing can stand in our way. God, I cannot wait to see what you will do. But God, I am so thankful for what I'm already seeing you do. God, I pray that we as the church would recognize and would walk with courage in the authority that you have given us. As your representatives on the planet. And we anticipate the day when the sky parts and our king returns. Our groom comes to take his bride. I pray that we would be a bride that is not walking in defeat, but a bride that is radiant and beautiful and longing for the king's return. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus.